Welcome to the Glorious Professionals podcast brought to you by GoRuck Media. In these sessions, we'll talk to people from all walks of life and all occupations. What they have in common is that they are all continually striving for excellence in their area of expertise or interest. It's appropriate at this point to explain the name we've chosen for this podcast, Glorious Professionals. Our roots at GORUCK are closely associated with my time in the Army Special Forces, an organization that traces its lineage in part to the World War II Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. The original members of the OSS were top-line specialists in their profession or chosen field, handpicked by the outfit's founder, Colonel William Wild Bill Donovan, to jump out of airplanes behind enemy lines in Europe and Asia. They were called the Glorious Amateurs, ergo the first part of our podcast name, Glorious. The traditional role of Army Special Forces is to train foreign armies and indigenous personnel, the only arm of the military designed for this purpose. Working mostly in secret, unnoticed, and unrecognized operations, they're known as the quiet professionals. They personify unique capabilities, professional demeanor, and a commitment to excellence, which leads to the second half of our podcast name, Professionals. These forerunner groups, the glorious amateurs and quiet professionals, describe exactly the type of guests we want to talk to on this podcast. Those who stand out in their field of endeavor and continue to strive for excellence. The first three interviews, our rehearsals, if you will, are with our team of hosts. Myself, my wife, Emily, whose background is in the CIA, and Richard Rice, one of my mentors and 30-year veteran of Army Special Forces. We hope you find these conversations and others to follow informative, interesting, and inspirational. Hi, I'm Emily McCarthy. I married Jason twice and was a former case officer in the CIA. Hi, I'm Richard Rice. I'm married to Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Want to fight? <laughs> I'm Richard Rice. I bounced around special operations for about 30 years, and I ended up in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, working for GORUCK. Thanks for having me, Rich. It's a pleasure. I've known you for some time, and now I get to know you a little bit better. Did you have a military tradition in your family? Sort of. My, my grandfather was an artillery officer in, in Korea, but he never talked about it. I mean, as much as I ever got out of him was he said, you know, he's like, I was basically a coward in the rear checking out maps and stuff, you know, and, and self, self-effacing way of life is kind of what you're supposed to do in the military. And that's, that's literally that and telling me how miserable Fort Sill, Oklahoma are in the summertime is th- those are the only two things that he ever told me. <laughs> and I know, Rich, you know a thing or two about Port Sill. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty miserable in the summertime. And, and then my uncle was a, was a naval aviator. So he graduated from Annapolis a couple years before I was born and then got to fly helicopters and stuff, but he was just never around. So I didn't grow up with it like that. And then my neither of my parents was in the military or anything. It was just, it was just a very different time. You know, it's just a very different time. The idea that, that you have done so well in your after military endeavors drives the question to me of what, what's caused that? What's caused you to, to get there? And I want to start back when you were being raised in Jacksonville, Florida or Jacksonville Beach, Florida. Tell us a bit about that period of time. Yeah. So I moved, I moved to Florida in about 1992, bounced around a bunch as a kid, originally from the great state of Ohio, also known as God's country. 
<laughs> and my, my parents were really, really young when they had me. So my mom was 18 and five days old when she had me. And my dad was not much older than that. So as you might imagine, the, their marriage didn't last very long, but you know, I, I have. <laughs> so, you know, I, I moved with my mom down to Florida. She moved down to, to UF, down in Gainesville, became a really good tennis player for, for the Florida Gators. So go Gators. And basically my mom was my, my rock in my very earliest days. And we, we moved around a bunch. She got remarried, moved to Dallas, moved to Tennessee, moved back to Dallas, moved back to Florida, stuff like that. And so, you know, there was some adversity with that. And it's, it's easier to, to view that from now than it was at then. Then it was just my norm. Well, when you think about those periods of time, are there any events that stand out in your life or any people that stand out in your life that, that established the drive that exists in you today? I, I don't know so much about the drive. I think all of us have certain things that are innate, but the, the self-confidence and just the encouragement, my, my mom was foundational with that. And you know, if, if you talk to her, she'll tell you she didn't really know what she was doing as a parent, but what she, she a thousand percent got right was she just was always there for me and she always had my side. And so if you're a parent out there, if your kid feels loved and he feels like you're always on their side, I mean, that's, you, you can win, you can win with that. Your mom's always been fiercely on her kid's sides. You know, I know I've babysat your younger brother and sister and got to see inside your glimpse inside your family life. And it was chaotic, but lots of love. Yeah. And then, you know, there were, there were sort of other layers of the people around me. My grandparents took a really, really vested interest in my life because, you know, they were really young when, I mean, my grandmother was like 40. When She when probably my, was like, I'm not ready to be a grandmother. Yeah. When, when my mom <laughs> had me and- it's hard to describe how hard that must have been, you know, and then the older you get, the more you see people's lives and you sort of it, just be, be kind to people. You just never know. <laughs> right. And, you know, so I guess to sort of connect some dots about building bridges and all of that stuff. I mean, yeah, I was always straddling two families and, and that was, that was my life. And so it was just my norm. And when you're in, any community. If you're in special forces, your norm is you're hanging out with special forces guys. That's its own crazy norm. Well, this part growing up, I mean, just one little anecdote is, I mean, I, I, I was at my dad's house in Ohio six weeks, every summer, uh, a week at Christmas break and every other spring break for a week. And I would, I would get on a plane for all of those. And so I became a good traveler was all always independent. I don't remember one time that anybody flew with me. So as, as long as my memory stands, nobody flew with me. And just to date myself a little bit, which I'm kind of happy to do that they would, the pilots on the plane, cause I was a kid, they would let me into the cockpit and they would let me fly the plane. Did they give you wings? They gave me wings. Yeah. And they were I have awesome. Wings. Yeah. <laughs> they were awesome. And, yeah. you know, that was just so cool. And I, I would dare say no American kid will ever do that again in America. And there was a bunch of us that got to do that. And so anyway, that became my life was, was bouncing back and forth between 
these families that in theory didn't like each other. The, the truth, there's lots of ways that this came full circle. And my grandparents ended up becoming friends before only one of my four grandparents is, is still around. And she's literally loves my dad now. I mean, my parents are, are separated and, and stuff and all, everyone's all remarried and I got a stepdad and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of other but He looked after her. He was the only one that stayed up in Ohio, right? And yeah, took so care my, of her. Right. So my mom's mom was up in Ohio and my dad was the only person for the last, you know, decade or, or actually more that's been in Ohio. And as health started to decline, and my dad started taking care of my mom's mom after he buried his own mom. I mean, it was just sort of, you know, life's a really funny place like that sometimes. And so I, I spent a lot of my youth kind of keeping things from, from each side, meaning I, I would avoid talking about certain stuff that I knew would bother my mom, or I, I just didn't talk about my dad with my mom. I didn't really talk about my mom with my dad. I learned how to aggressively separate those two out. And, you know, I wanted to keep the peace. That was my goal. Compartmentalize. I compartmentalized it very aggressively. When you look back on it, what do you think you were known for? When the family looked at you, what did they think of? What did, what did they know? Uh, I think they just knew me. And so it's, it's really hard for me. I mean, I guess to take your- Okay, I can give it a try. Give it a try. <laughs> I, I, sure. I think he's like a neglected golden child. You were the first and only grandchild for a really long time. So it was special and everyone was really young. So there was a lot of energy. And so you got to spend this one-on-one -on -one time with all these adults for a really long time. And then things shifted. Everyone started having their own kids or second marriages and- you know, and then you kind of had this weird schedule where you would just pop up and leave and go spend time with your dad and then come back. And, it, and like you said, you were compartmentalizing along the way. So you weren't probably getting everything that no normal, you know, kid would be getting at that time. So it was in some ways it was not that the love wasn't there, but that there were just gaps. Yeah. So I think that's mostly true of, of home life, which you, you saw the most of, you know, to my dad, I was his only kid. And so I would go up and stay with my dad and then still. we would literally, yeah, his, his only kid still. And we would just move into my grandparents' house because he was a, he's a pressman. So he's had the same job since I was born. It's 40 years now as a pressman and, you know, union shop in Dayton, Ohio. Right. And, and I would just stay with my grandparents. So I got to know my grandparents better than any, anybody else. And, and that's just a byproduct of time. And so one of the, there's always a silver lining to, to all adversity. There's always a silver lining. And for me, the, the silver lining of the separation and all, all the various degrees of travel and, and, you know, now it just seems like pure chaos. And at the time it was just my norm was I really, really got to know my grand and love my grandparents, not because they were my grandparents, but, but because I knew them. And, and so that, that was really helped shape me as a person. An educational process, if you will. Very much so. The most precious gift we all have is just time. And so it's the little nuances. It's the stories about their upbringing and the time that, you know, the way that they would describe the, the world. I mean, my, grandfather adored Frank Sinatra. I don't know someone from that generation that didn't. And so I, I put Frank Sinatra on at our house a lot. I have it on it at, at GORUCK headquarters from time to time. And it, it kind of 
harkens back to the generations. And I've, I'm, I'm a big believer that it's important to understand your, your past and your lineage and where you came from. And th- there's just a million more anecdotes like that. As you look back on it, what did you learn from the various people in your life? What, what did each one bring to you in a nutshell? I mirror my mom in a lot of ways. There's a lot of, and, and we're, we're still pretty different, right? But there's just a lot of stubbornness. And my mom was the best athlete in the family. So I, I wanted to be a better athlete than my mom and my uncle, who was also a, a great athlete. And I, I didn't do that, right? Unless you want to sort, sort of play the special forces card and say, well, we're great athletes in special forces, right? But, <laughs> you, you could say but, that. <laughs> and it's, it's true and all that stuff. But, but when you take a specific sport, they were, they were a lot better than I was. And, and so, I mean, my mom was great, not because she was a great athlete, but because she just worked hard. That was her thing. And so I, I inherited that, but, but an inheritance is nothing if you do, uh, unless you do something great with it. And so you have to actually do the work. What gets you through the hard times when you have a hard time in front of you and you th- start thinking about it, what gets you through that? So I think we all have things that comfort us. For me, it's sometimes as simple as you've got to go clear your head or I've learned myself. I've learned how I kind of react to, to certain situations. And so it, it becomes about, hey, I know that I'm not going to be very productive doing this right now. And there's a lot of chaos around. And so I need to go, I need to go outside. I'll take monster outside. Dogs are great for that and come back and kind of reprioritize. So sometimes it's certain music that I'll listen to as well. Sometimes it's Metallica. Sometimes it's a lot less, less so than, than that. I mean, it, it, it just, sometimes it's Frank Sinatra. Sometimes it's Frank Sinatra (laughs) and you know, they will hearken back to different triggers or different memories that I have that, that are just sort of calming to me. And, and then there's just this overarching approach of, I, I just, I know that it's going to be okay. Whatever it is, it's going to be okay. And you also make sure at a minimum you either ruck or bike in to work every day. I mean, physical exercise is just a foundational thing is really important to, to my life. And, and I'm not some crazy fanatic about it. And I, I, frankly, I wish I were a little bit more, but it's, it's mostly just movement. It's, you know, bike to work, ruck to work, just be, just do more on your feet and keep moving more. And that really adds up over time. And so, you know, then every once in a while, you gotta, you gotta throw some really good Metallica in your ears and, and sort of, you know, go do go, a go ruck event. Go, go do a go ruck event. Yeah. I'm sure the category won't take the, the music out of your ears now, but sometimes you gotta go, you know, pump some iron or you gotta go do CrossFit or you got to go do whatever just to kind of get rid of it. But, you know, tomorrow is always a new day. And so sometimes you've just got to learn how to cut your losses because if you just stare at a screen and more stuff not keeps not coming, or you keep, you know, thinking that something should go differently and it's, it's not, you you can't solve everything today. Well, in your time in special forces and now your time in go ruck, you've had a lot of time under a rucksack. What do you carry in your ruck? (laughs) <laughs> what special things other than a pair of clothes? 
Yeah. So some, some weight does a body good. Okay. Right. So put 20, 30, sometimes 45 pounds. I mean, for me, you know, the rucks and SF are really heavy. That's cool. I don't really go above 50 pounds now ever. Um, you know, a windbreaker, a layer or two, a, okay. a pair of socks, another t-shirt, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not rucking to then go to somewhere and dig fighting positions or, or something right. that much anymore until the zombie apocalypse hits. <laughs> but, you know, it's just some layers and some water, nothing, nothing crazy. I don't have some extreme everyday carry pack out or anything like that. If I travel, I got my laptop and I got, you know, a couple layers, but layers I can reuse that I don't, I'm not a one day, one outfit kind of guy. I like to. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of common No, no single use. No Products. single use. Yeah. It's yeah. wasteful and takes up a lot of space, but, but you, you can't carry too much more weight. Cause you got to be ready for the frago of the 35 pound kid on your shoulders. Right. There, there is that. Yeah. We'll be out. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's dad, carry me and <laughs> we've got a couple more miles to go. So I give him a, a ride on my shoulders and that's, that's pretty good fun. <laughs> Do, enjoy it while you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think it'll always be like that. So what are the significant events that you can remember that occurred that, that moved you to something else? I've, you've, you've asked a couple questions in this, this one memory, which I, I'd be surprised if I've ever even told Emily this, that really is one of my earliest memories in life was there was this, I was living with my mom in, in Gainesville and we were at this apartment complex and, you know, she was traveling a lot and she was, she was fit and she was what, 20 years old and she's at university of Florida. And anyway, my mom was, my mom was a babe, right? There you go. And, <laughs> and but there was this, there was this really, really night, the Florida thunderstorms where it's just, you can feel it in your house. It's shaking. And there was this guy that liked my mom a little too much. And my mom wasn't interested. And I, I remember him banging on the door as hard as he could, trying to get in and screaming and yelling. And we're, we're inside and, you know, my mom is sort of trying to protect me, of course. So she called the cops and all that stuff, of course. I mean, this was a, a neighbor that I had been inside of his house with my mom and, you know, showed me some stuff on his walls. And I, I vaguely remember that as well, but I really remember this night and just feeling really bad about stuff. Like I, I had a duty to protect my mother and I'm, I'm like four or five, something like that, you know? And obviously my mom she, she did what she had to do and, and called the cops and stuff and it diffused, but it was one of those moments of just pure vulnerability. And I really did not enjoy that feeling like being that vulnerable. And, and so it's, it's one of those earliest memories that just stuck with me for my entire life. And then, you know, to follow this up, the, the nine 11 was of course, a uh, just a huge event in my life at a time in my life where I was 22 years old and had just graduated from college and didn't know what to do, but wanted to do something special and didn't know what that looked like. And nobody in my family really had encouraged me or shown me how service could, could change my life for the better. But nine 11 was, was that. Excited at that point when nine 11 affected you and you ended up enlisting in the military what kind of struggles did you have adapting to military life? The biggest struggle that I had was just actually enlisting. 
I mean, I spent about a year going through a lot of, cause it was, I just graduated from college. You know, I have a college degree. You feel entitled somehow, even though you shouldn't. And you have options. Uh, yeah, you have options. You're right. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it checked the box and it, it puts you in whatever category and you're supposed to do certain things. Supposed right. to is a very bad way to view your life. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. And, you know, at a, I'm not saying don't get a college degree. I'm just saying find something that you love. So we, we can get to that now. But but I, I had to sort of figure out that that I was actually willing to sign on the, on the dotted line to go enlist in the army in a time of war and building a bridge between being a college boy, quote, quote, and, and enlisting is you're, you're taught to think about stuff and ponder and be a philosopher in college in a lot of ways, especially when you're not as an economics major, but an art history minor. And I, I always gravitated toward that stuff. And you, you don't need to be an art history minor to join the army. I'll just throw that out there now. Right. And so it just, That's not the normal path. <laughs> no, it's not. And so there was just a lot of overthinking everything. Why, why would you do this and not that? And that's not your job for your first years and years and years and years in the army. You're, you do what you're told and you do it well. So that was the biggest challenge was don't overthink stuff. And basically I had to submit. And, and that's, that's a hard thing to do because, you know, every when, when John- you've been trained not to submit and, yeah, to, and I mean, to think for yourself and to, to live your own life, then to totally submit everything you have. That's, that's a big step. There's no freedom in the army. And, you know, you're, you're outside the army. You're taught, you know, every Johnny is so special. Everyone's a special snowflake. And, you know, the world's your oyster, all these kind of cliche type stuff. And, you know, there is a ton of power for the rest of your life in submitting to some organization, some something bigger than yourself in a way that you have to submit to the United States military. It's a, it's something that a lot of people today don't realize. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of veterans in America and they all get that. Everybody that's listening to this is going to understand that, but there's a bunch of other people out there that won't. And that's a, a very valid point that you made. What was the hardest thing to submit to? What was the hardest part of that? There is just zero freedom whatsoever. There's no privacy and there is no freedom. And so when you sit and think about stuff, it doesn't matter to anybody except for you. Nobody. It doesn't matter at all. You could have a solution that's a million times better and it doesn't matter. I mean, drill sergeant, why are we standing out in the rain for the last three hours when there's a shelter right over there? <laughs> that, that's not a question that you ask. And, and if you do, it goes very poorly for you. And so, you know, why is a, is a really terrible question in, in that kind of context. And so I believe America's best days are in front of us. I believe in the next generation. I also believe you need to pay your dues. And, and that's not something, not just for America or these, these really extreme ideals, but you need to do it for yourself. Because you will learn if you find an organization and a mission that you believe in, you will, you will be willing to sacrifice some or all sometimes of your ideas or your thoughts on the way things should be. And you will say, I'm going to trust in this process. And, and there is so much power in that. I'm just going to, I'm going to trust that this is 
there, there's been millions of people that have been through this before me. And, and here I am and it's my turn and I need to submit to this process. And the trick is, is you got to find something that is worth submitting to. And so the military and, and especially well, for me at that time was, was very much that. That's an interesting way of putting it. It, a lot of people don't realize that military service is a life of service. We say military service, people use that term, but they don't realize that it's truly a life of service to the nation. Or way of life, yeah. right? You, you learn the way of life and then you want to keep applying that for the rest of your life. And, and that's, that's what I did not expect. And where you go in the military, you're continually looking for that part of the military that you're willing to submit to. And for many, it's special forces or special operations in particular, special forces for us. Yeah. You know, there's lots of ways to, to shift around in your career. I mean, you, you were in for 30 years. I was in for five. We're not exactly playing the same. Like I'm, I'm playing checkers and you're playing chess here, Rich. <laughs> right. But there's a lot of people and there. There's always something because hope is a very powerful motivator and you hope, Oh, if I do this, it's going to be better. And better is not, does not mean easier by the way. Right. So that it's sort of counterculture like that too. You, you want to find a better place where you can do more. And that's, that's usually harder. It's just harder in different ways. It, it's harder to attain and, and harder to maintain in many cases. As you work through this process, who do you remember as mentors in the army for you? So my, my drill sergeant was just a, an incredible man. And, you know, there's a lot of stigmas out there about go to war, go to jail and all of that kind of stuff. And as if you have no other options than to go to the military. And I find those patently false. And I find them kind of offensive, frankly. You know, these ideas of you come from a broken home and you don't have a father figure and all of that stuff. I mean, it does exist, but it's not necessarily the norm in my experience. Right. I, I say that to say that I didn't come from that. I, I have a, had a great relationship with my dad and my grandfathers and all of these things. And yet my drill sergeant was still kind of a father figure to me. I can only imagine, drill sergeant Hester. I can only Everybody remembers the name of their drill sergeants. Oh yeah. Ed Drake and Bill Mitchell. No question. <laughs> and that's from a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, you remember. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can only imagine how it would have been if I would have not had a father figure, it would have been even more amplified, but you know, his, his father had been a tunnel rat in Vietnam and he had this authorized mural in our, in our basic training bay. And I've, I'm still in touch with the man. I was just in touch with him last week. And last time I was in touch with him, I'm like, do you have a picture of that? He goes, it's one of my only regrets. I never took a picture of the mural, but it was a picture of his father. And it said, all gave some and some gave all from Vietnam. And, and so that was just the, he had the lineage or he had this sort of, his heart was in the right place. It was very much a family profession, if you will. But he was also the hardest on us by a lot. And he did it from the, the vantage point of he wanted us to be ready. And so I will never forget right before we graduated and you do this big dog and pony show, AKA drill and ceremony at, on the airstrip at Fort Benning. And M, you were there, nice. you remember it. I looked really good. <laughs> <laughs> February in Fort Benning hadn't, it was, it's, it's a sight to behold, but he, he brought us all around. And he goes, look, this is where we all go our different ways. 
And I just want you to know I've been hard on you because I love you and I want you to be safe. And sometimes you just need to hear that in life. And it, and it was a really powerful moment and we were all there and we shared it together. And it was just kind of validation. I already loved the man, but it was just validation for all of the hardship that we'd been through. And we'd been through a lot. I mean, uh, the winter in Georgia, you know, I'll take snow over 40 and rain any day of the week. Right. And, and it's, it's miserable. You wake up at four o'clock, you stand in formation for two hours, you sit and learn how to shiver. You know, I mean, that's what I remember. And yeah. then, yeah. I remember at the graduation, you and Scott Vallelie were standing side by side and I was going to take a picture of you with, with Sergeant Hester in the middle. And it was so funny because you guys were so much taller than him. He was not a tall man. It is not a tall man. And uh, all of a sudden he like gave an order and you two just like squatted to get on his level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, if, if you look at the picture, we're, we're grinning ear to ear because he looked at up at both of us, you know, turned to the left and turned to the right. And he's like, squat. <laughs> right. So we squatted and we got this enormous smile on our faces and he's just sitting there steely eyed, you know, it was, <laughs> it's, it's an awesome moment. Yeah. It's an awesome. Moment. And then when to transition to, to another mentor, it was just our, our medic on our special forces team. When I got to Iraq was the heart of the team. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, he was the consummate professional. There's a lot of things that you do that separate you from even the other guys on your team. It's just, you know, priorities of work and following the plan. You come back from a mission, you make sure that you're ready for the refit of the next mission immediately. It's just, you know, and that's your way of life. You want to be out training more. You want to spend the time with the guys. You, you, you want to keep honing your skills. And he, he drove us all to be better because he just, he didn't tolerate anything. He accepted excellence and that was it. And so those are the guys that you want to be around. And that's what Josh was for, for us. And so that's the standard for me. But, but Josh was a Green Beret. Josh right? was a Green Beret. So right? you, you went from basically street to Green Beret, like the 18 x-ray program, right? And do you think you ended up in the right place? Was that the right after all that kind of searching and trying to figure out where your place was? Yeah. I mean, what I, what I loved and came to find out about the Green Berets, I mean, I joined because it was special forces. I didn't join because it was the Green Berets. And I'll, I'll sort of separate that difference out, which is I didn't really understand all the unconventional war warfare stuff. I didn't really understand the idea of by, with, and through partner forces and training others. And you're sort of a diplomat with, with a gun. Right. And you, you learn how not to shoot because the more highly trained you are, the more confident you are. And you want to, you don't want to solve problems with violence if you can avoid it. And I mean, there's a reason why, why president Kennedy started the peace Corps and the green berets or authorized the green berets. I mean, if, if you sort of meld those two together, that's your perception of special forces meets the peace Corps is kind of what being a green beret is and that is, that's a really powerful kind of diametrically opposed view to the world. It just happens to really work. That's the thing because you're not just coming in to, to chop off another head on the, on the multi-headed Hydra. You're, you're sort of working with local, local forces to, in, in their country. And so the training side, the education side, 
the that side ended up really speaking to me a lot. And and yes, we were in war in 2007, and then you know training up in the Sahel region in, in 2008. And there there are certainly times for kinetic operations, meaning you know you're, you're out to go find bad guys. But the overall mission, I'm just I, I love. I love the the mission of the Green Berets by, with, and through local partner forces. I think it's the sustaining model of, I don't know, what would you call it? It's not war fighting. It's, it's like influencing global something. The military loves to call it nation building. And that's- Nation a, strengthening maybe? I mean- That's it's, probably it's, better. Uh, but it's, it's about helping people help themselves. And that's- that falls back to what I was saying earlier, and that is a life of service, a life of service, not only to your nation, but the people in other nations to help them have a better life, to do better for themselves. And in turn, it makes you feel better about what you've done. That's the goal. That, that spoke to me. It's, it's always been there. I think Kennedy understood it when you mentioned that, that he brought out both the Peace Corps and, and authorized special forces. That was a, a strong point at that time from everybody I talked to. I was not there at that time. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, Richard, something you ha- actually haven't done? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to chalk that one up. But I wasn't too far behind. But from everybody I've talked to, that was, that was their driving force at that particular point. That it was a positive aspect of war fighting as opposed to a negative positive being helping others to help themselves, negative being just out on kinetic operations, looking for bad guys to shoot. There's a place for both. There always will be, always has been, always will be. But it's much more satisfying. While it's satisfying to do kinetic operations, it's much more satisfying to do the the assistance and helping others. So when you came out of the military, what was the hardest thing for you to let go of and assimilate your, to assimilate yourself back into society. I mean, I, I thought I had a plan and sure we all did. Yeah. (laughs) And it just, it didn't go according to plan. And so it's just one of those things where you've got to figure out how to find something else. I mean, it's all, all of these buzzwords, you know, improvise, adapt, overcome all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's a hundred percent true. It's easy to say, and it's hard to do. And so Shortly after the military, I had no mission or purpose because I left the military. I didn't have a job because I left the the military. Then I'm going through a divorce to to this one right over here. Gotcha. And you know it comes full circle. It's a it's a happy ending, although it's not ended, so it's even happier. <laughs> but you're still on probation. <laughs> good, good catch, Jason. Yeah, I'll be on probation forever. It's all good. And anyway, it's. It's just, you know, what was I going to do with my life? And it doesn't start, well, maybe do you start by just working really hard or, or do you start by just finding another mission and purpose that you really believe in? And I think ultimately, if, if you find another mission and purpose right out of the gates that you really believe in, you're, you're one of the few. I think that it's easier to find something to work really hard at and, and do other things in life, stay in shape, do, do physical stuff, do service projects, do all of that kind of stuff, but you just got to stay busy. And, and so I didn't really get that. So that kind of leads me to my, my next point that what did you take away from the military 
that you use in your everyday life, that you used then and that you used throughout and that you use today? So I was, I was chatting with one of our cadre who led a lot of events at GORUCK and it was a late night at the team house in say 2013 or something. And, you know, we started talking about are people born leaders or are they, do they become leaders? And I, I looked at him, I go, Garrett, did you, cause I, I was of the mindset that you become a better leader incrementally. And he was of the mindset that you're a born leader or you're, or you're just not right. And I think the ultimate answer is somewhere in the middle, but I'll, I'll get to that because it's the day that you graduated from the Q course, do you feel like you gained a lot of confidence and leadership that you didn't have the day that you showed up? And he's like, absolutely. Did you become a better leader? Absolutely. Did you learn about yourself and perseverance and enduring all these horrible things that they do to you in training? Did that make you stronger and mentally tougher and physically stronger? It's absolutely right. I mean, and so my point is, is that some people might do a little better and some people might do a little worse at the Q course, but everyone gains a ton sure. from this process. And so you become incrementally just stronger. You become a better leader, you become tougher, you become all of these things. And so I learned about myself in the military and, and I learned about a way of life that was about service to, to some higher cause than myself, something bigger than myself. And I learned what that felt like, not, not what it reads like in a book where you cry at the movie theater, but I learned what that feels like with, with the guy to my left and the guy to my right. And, and that becomes something that you want to experience for the rest of your life. But that can be taken away, right? I mean, you know what I mean? You can have that confidence. You can have gained that through the Q course and then you can go to war and feel like you're accomplishing things and then you can come back and that can all be stripped down. Yeah. You, you said this. To, I, you I, have to I start over again. Confidence is perishable and you're, you're absolutely right. I, it's, it's kind of like, let's say you played basketball in college and let's say you don't play for 10 years. You still have that muscle memory. You still know what you did a, a decade earlier, or you, you ran in college or you did whatever it, it's, I mean, the physical and the mental are so, to me, they're just so similar in, in just so many ways, but you have that muscle memory for confidence. You know what you're capable of. You just have to figure out a way to be humble and to understand that if it's 10 years later and your starting point might be a little bit different or it's five years later, or, you know, it's a few years later, or you're six months out of your transition and it's just life's hard. You don't know, you, you feel like a shadow of your former self and you feel certain things that are prohibiting you from doing anything because you start to tell yourself, I'll never be the person that I was. And you know, that's crippling. And so confidence is perishable. You're right. Um, and you just have to, you just have to move forward. That's really what it boils down to. Well, you build up in your own mind what you perceive others think of you. And then you try to live up to that standard. It's that word should. Yeah. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. You should be, you know, making this much money. You should be this happy. You should have a better Instagram feed. I mean, it's you all ridiculous. You should have X number of wives or X number of children. <laughs> <laughs> One wife for you, several for me. That's that's another story for another time. But don't it, worry, you're you're third in the hopper here, Rich. It goes back to what Marcus Aurelius said. 
And that is, ask not what a good man is, be one. And if you can figure out what be one means, that's a good life. Amen. <laughs> so, so how do you, you're humbled, what's the next step? Like, where do you go from there? I mean, you know, GORUCK started out as a hobby that sort of born in your government house in, in Abidjan, West Africa, right? And it's, it's a series of so many accidents why GORUCK exists that it's tough to fathom how it does exist. It's kind of like, if you look at all the missions in Rich's life, you just wonder how he's alive, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, wait, how did all of those, and you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other guys to take it to a, a different note that went through some of them and they're not here anymore. And, and that's it, a lot of it's luck. And some of it is just perseverance. And you keep, if, if you stay doing a, the best job that you can, then you get to sort of tip fate sometimes. You, you live to tell the story. You live to tell the story. And so, you know, GORUCK started out as, as just a hobby and it was just something to do. Beyond that, I mean, I just kind of incrementally, okay, well, I guess the whole import export business to Africa is not a good idea, especially since I don't live anymore, live there anymore. I got kicked out and I'm, you know, living on a buddy's couch in New York. And, and how do I, I guess I like the name go rock. So got to figure out how to build a, do something. I didn't even think about building business. It was just how to build a, a backpack, a rucksack. And so got to find someone that can do that. So didn't have any luck with my immediate circles because I don't know anybody that sews. So put an ad, ad in Craigslist, New York city. And then a, a couple living in Montana happens to answer it. And, and, and by the way, and I, it was at, in a time when people were looking for work, right? The it, exactly. economy had just tanked. If things. the economy were purring, everybody's working and, and nobody's answering those kinds right. of things, but people needed money. They're, they're They just really need yeah. the work. And so, you know, in this, there's a lot of time that goes by. I mean, the initial idea for GORUCK was, was Christmas leave 2007 into the new year of 2008. And you know, we didn't have rucksacks done until May of 2010. And, and that's not because the process was just so slow. That's because I was really slow with the process. You know, I, I was not committed to this. Like, what is this? Mm. And if you're out there listening now and you sort of look at GORUCK and it looks bigger or whatever, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that then at all. You know, I, I don't have that entrepreneurship story about, I just knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life and here it is. And, and so it was incremental and it kept sort of 10 grand here and five grand there and seven grand there and, you know, time, but I was grateful to, to spend the time on GORUCK because it felt like an outlet. And, and so it's just a series of accidents that actually managed to keep this thing going. And then we kind of did something that was pretty good. I think most people would hear that and say at some, I mean, I think about myself, I think, you know, at, this was you driving this at this point. I would have been like, Oh shoot. Well, 15,000, that's my limit. Right. I'm not going to go anymore. And it's like, what kept you going? Like what kept you going down the path, even when it wasn't even sure this was going to be lucrative? Well, I mean, the first is that uh, I hate, I hate to fail. And so what I had, I had this enormous sense of failure in my life at this time. I mean, 
going through divorce is the hardest thing I ever, I ever did. And, and so there was this other element of this other element of wanting to prove to you as an ex-wife that <laughs> this was absolutely going to work out. And, mm-hmm. and so I'll show her and <laughs> sure. And, and, you know, I, I mean, and, and that's, that's really sort of at, at a, at a deep level. And I, I guess I'm proud to share that now. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that. <laughs> exactly. Oh, come on. Of course you knew that. Well, it's also that's- why I wanted to come to your silly event in New York in November in 2010. Yeah. So, you know, Freaking when cold night after the gear wasn't selling, came up with the go ruck challenge and <laughs> you know, yeah, how did, how did that occur? I mean, what, what, what drove you to do that? Now at this point, you've described several times in your life that you've done something that I'm a big proponent of, and that is reinventing yourself into new, a new picture of who you are. Who's Jason McCarthy? Uh, you, you've reinvented yourself multiple times, which is what people do throughout their lives. They just don't realize what they're doing. Well, now you're you're playing with rucksacks, and I don't mean that in a in a silly way. But oh, I know how you mean you're, that, Mitch, with reverence, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> sure. But all of a sudden, it's like, where did the challenge come from? Yeah, so I, you know, at this point in my life, let's call it 2009. I'm in my first year of business school. And the reinvention quote, quote is I'm the special forces guy going through a divorce with a dog and maybe a backpack company at Georgetown's business school in Washington, DC. That's, that's who I am at that point. So there was this guy, his name was Mark and we were in some class together. They all sort of blend together, especially because I (laughs) figured out a way to not go to that many of them. And so he was like, oh, there's this thing called Tough Mudder. And it's sounds like something that could be cool for your your rucksack company. And so you know, synergies and, bu- and stuff. synergies, exactly. <laughs> in business school, they did just, everything is a synergy and partnerships and combinations and collaborations. Yeah. Collaborations. And so that sort of, then I went up and met with them and, and they were more advanced, a more advanced business for sure. in in Brooklyn and kind of did their first event, May 2nd, 2010 in, in Pennsylvania and did it with, I think seven green berets, uh, there were seven green braids that did it with one of our rucksacks stuffed with bricks. And so it became this story. And what I realized now is that it was something is a lot more than nothing. You got to get, you got to do something to, to break out of just, it's a busy, crazy place and the world doesn't owe you anything. And so you've got to differentiate yourself somehow. And I, this was one of many nets that I was casting. Most of the nets were actually in the, the manufacturing world, you know, trying to partner with this company or that company, because that's the mindset I was in, but did that event and then met with them some more. And the goal was to, to come up with an event that I would lead that would translate into, hey, you do this event. It's a prequel to the next Tough Mudder, which is an obstacle course race. So it's a, you know, there's a bunch of obstacles and you go do it together. Right. We did it as a team but we wanted to do something prior to that. And the guidance was to create little mini fight clubs. And so that became the, hey, sure, I'll go out and lead something and, and build out some fight clubs in these cities. And so did the first event, September 25th, 2010 in San Francisco, California, right before their Tough Mudder second event, which was in Lake Tahoe. And so we did it and it was, got my little fight club. We, we sat in the parking lot after the event and drank beers and told, you know, sort of 
go ruck challenge stories about how awesome it was. And at that point I was like, all right, this is, this is, I believe in this. Cause it was the same drawing upon the training as a green beret to, to build teams and perseverance and improvise, adapt, overcome stuff. And it's in a challenging physical setting. What, what was the nature of that first partnership with Tough Mudder? Like what, what were you supposed to get out of creating little fight clubs? There, there was nothing official. No, and, you were just going to get some awareness of well, the bags. So they got, they got the ability to have this sort of human interest story of special forces are coming in and running or rucking our event with a, a backpack or a rucksack with stuffed with bricks. And so there's some validation to that for them. And for us, it was, you know, we showed up with a tent and brought a bunch of gear and nobody bought it. Some guy named Neil bought, bought one rucksack at, at, the, first, at the first Tough Mudder first event. And it was, a lot, it was a lot more expensive than what that, that rucksack, <laughs> you know, provided for us. But just in my case, I was starting on a company and I got to deal directly with the, the founders, the co-founders of Tough Mudder. So that was easier to just just get a deal done and Hey, just show up at this thing and then let's see where it goes. And so, you know, ultimately Tough Mudder got some other partners and sort of said adios because we weren't going to write big checks and we were into community building and stuff like that, which is a lot harder, more nuanced work. And, and so we, we separated ways, but it started out very just raw and, and we still kind of do this some of the time at Go Rock. It's sort of, Hey, let's just take a chance on this and see where it goes. And you know, we're small enough to where we have those, those opportunities to do that. And we're, we're wise when we empower our team to have those same kind of, Hey, if you believe in this, go chase it down and see where it goes. It's interesting that you used a phrase in that description of all that. And it, it comes from your military and I'm sure you realize it, but you don't realize it at the same time. When you're in the middle of a firefight somewhere and you're not sure exactly what you're supposed to do at that point, because it's so the fog of war and all of that stuff that goes on. The phrase you used was, we got to do something. So you do it. And you did that and you used that force to push you into doing something. Whether it was right or wrong doesn't matter. I mean, you get to a point in life sometimes when it's, it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. You just got to do something. You, you and, do. I mean, business, war, love, and life. There are so many absolutes that apply to all of them. And absolutely. in this case, to me, I've, I've always, I've marveled at learning this and it took me a really long time to accept that I had to submit, but in, in matters of violence, aggression is safer. That that's, that's a doctrine thing. And you, yeah. you learn that that's the truth. I mean, the Ranger handbook will state if you are ambushed, meaning someone digs in and fires all their guns at you at the same time while you're crossing on a road or whatever, what do you do next? Counter ambush. Attack. Attack. You, you yeah. stand up because you, you hit the deck. And, and what you do is you stand up and you counter attack. I mean, that's, it, it just, it defies logic. And yet in matters of violence, aggression is safer. And, and you, can, you can take that lesson to life and you can say, I, I got to do something. Because inertia, if, if you subject yourself to the world's inertia, that's a bad place to be the pace of humanity. And, you know, eventually there's, there's just mushrooms growing off of your, <laughs> off of whatever. Right. I mean, you're, you're just buried however many feet under you, you gotta, you gotta move. Yeah. You gotta just keep moving. And that's, that's something that I'm comfortable with. You've been through all of these phases now. Where did you set the scale 
to know that you had achieved what you consider excellence or have you achieved excellence? I mean, frankly, I, I don't really view it like that. I think it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a moving target for the rest of your life. And winning is the standard and excellence is the standard. They're, they're kind of symbiotic like that. I mean, they're just mm -hmm. joined at the hip. And, and so what you learn or what I learned, the perspective that here today, gone tomorrow, and that's life and that's everything. It can be gone in, in a second. And so it's, it's important to celebrate some victories, but nobody has the Midas touch and I don't either. It's a lot of hard work. You know, go to the masters like Da Vinci and they'll just say great artwork is never finished. It's abandoned. And so to, to quote, I think Steve Jobs, this is a quote, like great artist ship. And so you've got to eventually say, okay, this is, this is good enough. Now, good enough is a relative way to look at this because it's relative to the standard that you're setting. Right. So you have to, if you, if you have a, a propensity for anything, you gotta, you gotta learn how you measure up. We have grandiose notions of, of what we could do with our lives or what we would like to right. do. And you have to learn what you're good at. And the only way to do that is to keep full throttle and you have to keep moving forward. And the world will give you some feedback. It will. If you're smart enough to listen to it. But even if you're not, eventually it'll give you feedback. It's just yeah. how much pain do you want to endure yeah. along the way? Exactly. And so, you know, it turns out that gear and all of that stuff, there's some, I, I learned so much in special forces about how stuff will fail and how the body performs with gear and rocks and boots and apparel, all of it. Right. And so drawing upon that for my daily life at Go Rock is it comes kind of naturally to me because I have this experience to draw on and then surround myself with guys like you and, and other cadre and then, you know, other just performance athletes like, like M and, and all of us. And, you know, it makes a better team. It's stronger, sure. but in terms of, you know, excellence, like is GR one an excellent rucksack? I mean, I, I hope so. I think so. I can also tell you that there's so many trade-offs that go into everything and could it be a little better if this or a little better if that, I mean, sure. Eventually materials will change, you know, hopefully eventually zippers get stronger. I mean, th these are the things that we don't, assumptions we, we don't sit and question every day, but the world will evolve. Zippers will get stronger. Zippers are the weak spot in anything. I mean, it's, it's a metal chain with threads connecting them. It will break. And then your, your thing, whatever has the zipper is, is combat ineffective, if you will. You so it is a relentless pursuit because every day changes. And then once you have something that's, that's done, you have to keep building it. So great, you, we built one or two in R&D, but then you have to scale quality. This isn't graphic design, right? And so we have to build a team around us that can go to factories and liaise with the, the lines of sewers that are there. And, and so I've not arrived is what I'm getting at. And, and I, don't, I don't sit here and say, oh, I'm just, I've made it. Like that's the opposite of how I feel. I feel like I feel like everything can be so much better. It's just, it's incremental. There's always a way to do it better. Always and a you, way. You continually strive to look for that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But So what do your family or friends, acquaintances, what do you think they admire about you? <laughs> Either through their direct feedback or your perception of, of how they see you. The, the thing that I would hope is that they would say that I'm loyal. And, and that's something that I 
strive to be. And I mean, you look at what we've talked about already. I mean, my, my mom and I, right, growing up and joining special forces team, really feeling what that, I mean, the, you are loyal to the person next to you. I mean, your team is tight. It's one of those huge virtues with me in life. It's why I have a dog as well, right? I mean, dogs are just so loyal and I just respect that about them. And so that's the kind of person that, that I want to be. And that's really important to me. Well, it seems to, to spill into all parts of your life and you're loyal to the company, you're loyal to your gear, you're loyal to your employees, you're loyal to your family. And that loyalty is, is across the entire spectrum of your life. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're kind of in the, when I know you, you know, and, and so some of the, the transition phases of go rock, just, it's, I don't know everybody quite as well. I just, I'm very humbled. Anybody who wants to, who believes in our mission and comes here and wants to dedicate their time to what we're, what we're building together. You know, there's just, there's some folks that have been around longer and I'm really loyal to them and some sure. things, time and experience. It's, it's a combination of the two, you know? And if you have a lot of time with people, your family or old friends, it's like, you know, I got, friends from high school that they could call me up and I'll go do anything for them, you know? And then you got, I've got friends that I've made more recently and you go do something like, you know, you and I going back to Vietnam and retracing some of your steps and going to some of your old bases and it, it really formed this huge bond. So time right. and experience, some combination thereof. You mentioned friends and, and a definition I heard of friends one time is somebody that you can call up and tell them to bring guns and money. And all they say is where, <laughs> so that's, that's a possibility. That's about but right. Emily, I want to ask you the same question. What do you think people admire in Jason? You know, it's funny. I, I do think he's very loyal. He, he actually, if he could be anything else other than himself, he would want to be a dog. He always tells me this story about in high school when we had like all these papers due and he would just look at his dog sleeping on there and be jealous of him. True story. But uh, no, I, I, there's a lot of things that I love about Jason and loyalty is certainly one of them. But I, what always surprises me, he seems sometimes like he's not listening, but he's really got an elephant memory. I've noticed. <laughs> and he'll use that in ways that is productive, you know, and not a way to hurt you but to make you better. There you have it. That's, that's, that's Judge a, and jury that's right great. there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's the one that counts. We've well, made a couple of references to Monster, of course, and your previous dog, Java. What do dogs represent in your life? And have there been others? I had dogs my whole life and they were always just loyal and they were full of energy. And so to, to burn off some of their energy, I would burn off some of mine and they love you for it. And that's a, that's a pretty great relationship. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a better person with the dog and that's, it's, it's not because I, you know, a hundred times a day I'm petting monster. It's because, you know, it's just stay on your feet, go outside, be more active. And, and dogs are along for the ride and they're very loyal. And I respect that about them. So when you think about your life and what you've been through and the world as it stands right now, what lessons and or values do you want to 
impart to your children? Top of mind for me is this idea that, that we owe. It's really important to view yourself as something bigger than yourself because if you live that life, it's a very rewarding one. And so I learned that lesson in the military. There are a lot of ways to learn that lesson. And I, I'm not sitting here saying, you know, our kids have to go join the military or else, right? I mean, right. they'll have it as an option just through exposure, but it's important to raise, I want to raise our kids so that they feel like they should serve, give them options to serve something greater than themselves and, and let them see what that feels like and see where that leads in, in their lives. You know, to take that up a notch, I mean, we have three kids. There are three of lots of kids out there. And so how does that impact a, a generation? You know, how, how do we look at the future of America? And it's in the hands of our kids. And so, you know, any, any parents out there, I don't know if your kids are like mine, but they don't listen as well as they observe and, and shadow what you do. And if you do something, they're more likely to follow that than just if you say something. And so none of us is perfect and I'm not by any stretch. The big things that I want to pass on is just how we spend our time and we spend our time together as a family in communities and we're active and we have friends and we, we sync up with them in the real world and we form these relationships. And that's what it's about for us is these stronger kind of communities that, that we're a part of. And once you, once you have that in your life, that's taken away, bad things happen. And I know because that's what my life was like when I transitioned out of the military. If you have that in your life as a foundation, the same way that I had it through my mom and my extended family, and then, you know, found it in the military as well. And if you have this as a foundation, you can go do anything you want to do in this world. It's, it's really hard to be a Steppenwolf type of lone ranger that just going to self-made man and solve all the problems of the world because you're Jason Bourne or something. That, that doesn't exist. We're, we're infinitely strengthened by being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And so that for me is just driven by the idea that I owe. And I owe, you know, the memory of those that I served with who have, who have fallen, meaning they don't get to fight anymore for this America that they, that they died for, right? right? The values that we hold dear, that's not something. So the fight is ours now. And we owe the next generation because why did we fight in the first place? Just for ourselves? That's absolutely not the, not the case. We fought because we believed in something bigger than ourselves. And then the third is that we, we owe ourselves. Like we, we should be happy. We should live productive, rewarding lives. And the way to do that is to strengthen our relationships and our communities and spend our time like that. And really good stuff comes out of that. And so that's the, the America that I believe in. And that's what I want my kids to inherit. And that's what I want the next generation. That's how I believe that they will ensure that America's best days are in front of us. Are there any particular quotes or phrases that, that come to you that you continually look back on from time to time and use them to generate something within yourself to drive and do better or to further what you think is important in supporting yourself, your family, your country? I mean, the special forces motto is to free the oppressed. It's, it's kind of just a way of life 
for us, but to me, it, de oppresso liber, it just means it's not about you, right? When you go serve, it's, it's to serve some higher purpose besides yourself. And, exactly. And, you know, that comes a lot of, in a lot of different phrases in a lot of different ways. And that one to me is just, I, I owe so much of who I am, which determines where you go. I, I owe because of my time within the special forces regiment. And so it's, it's hugely impactful on my life. You've had a lot of success at this point and there's a lot of drive that's pushed you there. How much of that drive has been luck in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to quantify, right? I mean, or you get a break here, you get a break there. There's a lot of luck. You know, if you're in a business meeting and someone says things are going well, like well is not a number, right? Like tell me define well, I, I can't do that for you. What I can say is that there is inherently just a lot of luck that, that goes into anything from, you know, you go to war, you don't get blown up, you don't get killed. That wasn't my fate at that time to meeting certain people and, and getting out and getting after it and trying to figure out how to build a business. What I can tell you is that the more that you keep moving forward in life, the more luck you'll find. What motivates you to continue? Well, I mean, it's sort of what we talked about. I mean, this idea that I owe, part of it is, is I was born a certain way and I just, I got to stay busy. I got to keep moving forward. I got to dedicate myself to something I believe in. And you saw people doing it. Yeah, of course. And then you sort of, you, you realize you're not crazy. Right. Right. You find yourself around other people that share the same way of life. And you're like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. And then you're trying to keep pace. You're trying to keep up and be average. And then you're trying to get ahead a little bit, you know? Was, is there something that you really wanted to be cool at that you weren't? Life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like I couldn't even grow a beard in special forces, right? <laughs> you see the bearded bastards and you, you think all of this stuff about special forces guys and beards and guns and I couldn't even grow a beard. Oh, that really sucks for you. Yeah, it I does. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, and <laughs> he was good at rucking there. I was there good is. at rucking, I guess. Yeah. So that's cool. <laughs> if go ruck hadn't been successful, did you have a plan B plan B was plan a actually. And plan a was to go join ground branch for the CIA. And so the hard conversations that I had in my life were through Emily, I'd met, I mean, you don't just meet guys from ground branch unless you're in this community. It's not how it works, right? You don't, you can't go find some forum on wherever, where they're just hanging out that you can get, you know, the insiders track and, and through M it just had met these guys. And it's a seamless transition to, to transition over to the, the agency from being in, in special forces. But the way that life went, I went to business school and that bought me some time. And I, you know, I used the post 9-11 GI bill and I'm grateful to the American taxpayer for that. And I used that and it bought me some time. And in that time, this other thing happened that was go ruck. And so it led me down that path. And, and I, I came to really believe in that path and my ability to make a difference. And to connect another dot in the early days, I, I just, I was not, I was not committed though. And I, I remember going out to Colorado and I was on Josh's, our, our medics back porch. And I was talking to him. I'm like at this fork in the road between ground branch and trying to go back to that and doing go ruck stuff. And he's not the kind of guy that just oozes praise or 
encouragement. That's, that's kind of not his shtick. You have to earn it. Right. And, you know, we had been to war together. We were brothers forever. And he's like, look, there's, there's a lot of people in our community that can go serve at ground branch. This seems like you found something that you can do. That's a little bit different. And that was all the encouragement that I, that I needed. I mean, the validation of the special forces community, if, if that would not have existed, GORUCK would not exist. If this would have been something that in some way was seen as that was just beneath a special forces soldier, I, I would have not done this. If, if the bags would have sucked, if whatever, take your pick, I would have done something. I would try to gone back and, and serve directly in the agency or go back and join the military or whatever the case may be. Do you know, or do you think of lessons in your story or Goruck's story that you would like people to walk away with? Ultimately, it really just, it's, it's not as easy as it looks. Nothing is. Whether it's the life that someone presents online or whether it's building a business or whether it's any of that, none of this is easy for any of us. We've all been knocked down really low. We've all been in really bad spots in life. And it really comes down to perseverance through that. And you as a person have it in you to, to persevere. It's just, it's up to you. And the more that you learn how to take on and, and achieve these little victories, the better you'll be along the way. And then a big, a big situation presents itself and you've got to persevere through that. You've got to train yourself along the way. So go, go do more, push yourself a little bit harder, whatever that looks like. And take and the journey, take the journey. So you expect something to, to be easier than it is. And then it gets really hard. And then you sort of say, okay, well, that, that was cool, but I, I didn't expect it to be like this. And I just want you to know it's always like that. It's always hard. Anything worth doing is always hard. You just have to keep going and you have to pick yourself up again and again and again and again. And that's the hard part is that it's, it's just, you never know when it's going to strike. You just, you know, the enemy has a vote right? And the world is, is not really your friend. You know, it doesn't owe you anything. The people that you meet in, in life, in the world, that's your sort of foundation for, for what you can do in the world. But it's, you know, if, you, if you're just hoping to, to just make it because of whatever reason, that's probably not going to go well. I mean, there's a little bit of just stay the course. I mean, if, if, you're, a, if you're a true professional, it's also just not easy. Like just keep after it. Be one. Be one. Exactly. Marcus Aurelius, be one. What, what achievements are you looking for for GORUCK in 2020? Uh, you know, we measure our sort of livelihood in terms of activity. We want people to be more active and we want to kind of start to show people a way of life that's about a lot more than online engagement and that everything that's wrapped up into that. I mean, there's so many divisions and there's so many problems out there. We just want people to be break down some of those barriers in the real world, face-to-face, person-to-person and get out and be more active. And so, you know, we want to see growth in, in, along those channels. Very good. Thank you very much, Jason. So that's a wrap on our first episode of Glorious Professionals. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in.